0: Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Jennifer Roth, I don't know what you've been up to this week, but we and our family have been on spring break. I had two, my husband and my oldest son who went to Mexico with the youth group. They just arrived back yesterday. Uh, my eighth grade son went to San Francisco on the eighth grade mission trip. You might've remembered that whole horde of students that were up here being commissioned. I had three up there for that. He got back Thursday and while they were all away, my daughter and I took a girl's trip to Seattle. I will say we went the wrong way for the weather, but we had a lovely time in Seattle. So I don't know if any of you have been traveling or what your week has been like, but I am glad that you're here and glad that we're opening God's Word together. We are continuing in our series on Nehemiah from rubble to Revival, and we'll be in uh, Nehemiah chapter 10 today. But before we dive into that, there's something else kind of important that we need to talk about because there's been something else going on, and that is the NCAA March Madness, Final four. I'm sorry if you're a Duck fan. I hate to see Oregon lose a championship coming up. In our family, basketball's a big deal. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I get that. Not everybody lives, eats and breathes basketball like we do, but our extended family actually has a bracket competition every year about who wins the March Madness competition. And even before the college team started playing, there was a game that happened that was very important to us that I want to tell you about. And that's the 5A girls semifinal in the championship tournament against Silverton and Corvallis. Now, I bleed orange for Silverton. That's just the way it is. Uh, And the Silverton-Corvallis rivalry is quite a big deal if you bleed orange for Silverton because they're in-league rivals. They have two games every year in league and a third if they make it to the playoffs. And last year, Silverton was 3-0 in that rivalry and won the state championship. This year, coming into this semifinal game, Silverton was 0 and 2 in the rivalry, and we were in the semifinal down in Corvallis. And the game went into not one, not two, but three overtimes—triple overtime. Massive rivalry. You can imagine the tension in the gym. And the thing was, Silverton could have won at the end of regulation. We were tied. We had the ball. We were holding it for the last minute, as teams do, and we dribbled it out of bounds. And Corvallis got the ball. They got to go down and make a shot at it. They missed, we didn't lose, we're into overtime. Other thing you need to know about this is that these teams are a defensive showdown. The score at the end of the first quarter was 11 to four. Every basket is hard fought. So if you can go up by two, you can realistically hold that lead for the four minute overtime. Like This is the kind of game it's been. So the crowd is living and dying over every point. In the first overtime, we've made a three-pointer. We're up by three. There's 18 seconds left. We have the ball out of bounds. This game is all but over. And we mess up the inbounds pass. And they steal it. And they make a quick three. And the buzzer goes off. And we're into the second overtime. End of the second overtime. Silverton has the ball, seven seconds left. They call a timeout, we run it out of bounds play, they get their play off, they get it into the middle, they ride up, lay up, it goes in, as the buzzer, It it's amazing, we all jump up and down. And the ref says, no, it didn't get off before the buzzer. At this point, somebody in the Silverton stands throws their hat out onto the court, and a coach ran out and threw it back just as hard and just as fast, like, don't you dare cost us this game. <laughs> so we head into the third overtime, Silverton makes a couple baskets. We get up by four, we can stall, we can delay. It's looking pretty good. They get a free throw. We're up by three, Corvallis gets the ball. They've got a last second shot at it and they miss and the buzzer goes off and Silverton wins. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a minute the crowd, the crowd that I was a rabid participant in. There's a guy behind me who's been pacing the entire game. And when it gets too crazy, he paces out into the hall and then he comes back in and looks and there's agony on his face. And there's, a, there's a, a friend of mine beside me and her niece is the one who made the three pointer in the first overtime. And she's on the phone with somebody who couldn't be at the game. And she's like, Maddie just made a three and we can win the game. And, and, and there's a woman in front of me who's got her phone out and she's just keeping really calm because you know when you video, you don't want to be saying anything. You all know that, right? And so she's like live streaming it to Facebook and, and you just watch the postures and the facial expressions. I mean, me, I'm just like, you're, just, you're agonizing every play and every, and you're just so close and yet so far and almost there, but not quite. And, you know, had Silverton won at the end of regulation, we would have cheered. Had we won at the end of the first overtime, we, we would have probably jumped and cheered. If we had won at the end of the second overtime, we probably would have screamed and jumped and cheered. I did scream and jump and cheer, and then that ref went, no, it's off. But when we won at the end of the third overtime, we wept, <laughs> we hugged, we cried, we fell into our seats and went, oh my goodness, it's over. And then we had to drive home from Corvallis, it's like, I hope none of us get in a wreck on the way home with the adrenaline just like coursing through our veins. <sighs> These agonizing experiences of repeated failure and so close but so far. And as we open up to Nehemiah 10, I know it's kind of a stretch, but as I read this, I think this is where the people are at. These are people who, many of them were born into exile because the nation of Israel failed to follow God. They've been allowed to come back. They've rebuilt the temple. They've resettled Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the wall. And now they're looking to rebuild their lives according to the word of God and according to the law. And so last week we heard Steve talk about how they asked their leaders to read the book of the law to them. And as they read the book of the law to them, the people wept. They cried because they saw how far they had come and how much they had missed the mark of following God's law. And yet in that weeping, Nehemiah came and he said, no. This is not a day for condemnation. This is not a day for weeping. This is a day for celebration because we can choose to turn and follow this law again. And so the people went home and they prepared feasts and they celebrated. As a matter of fact, they celebrated one of the ancient festivals and it says they celebrated as it had not been done since the time of Joshua. So do you hear these emotional reactions to the repeated failure of their ancestors, the the weeping and the celebrating? It says that they stood for three hours and listened to the law and then they stayed for another three hours and confessed their sins and worshiped God. These were people who were feeling that agonizing reality of the repeated failure of their people. When you look at Nehemiah 9, they rehearsed the history of their people. God, you chose Abraham. You brought us out of Egypt. Moses led us through the desert and we rebelled. And yet, you did not abandon us, and you brought us into the promised land. And once you settled us there, we turned to evil again. And you know, if you've ever wrestled with your own ability to follow God wholeheartedly, if you've ever wrestled with that agonizing, repeated failure of so close but not quite, Nehemiah 9, read Nehemiah 9 over and over and over again as it shows us. It says, You are a God of forgiveness, gracious and merciful, slow to become angry, and rich in unfailing love. You did not abandon them. And back and forth, you did not abandon, but we sinned. And we know the story. They ended up in exile because they failed to follow God, and now they're back, and they long to follow him. And the question that I want to look at today is this, what do we do when we notice that we have drifted from God? What do we do when we notice that we have drifted from God? We're going to read what this community of people did when they noticed how much they had drifted from God in Nehemiah chapter 10. It's on page 785 of the Bible that's in front of you in the pew if you want to follow along. And I'm actually going to start reading in the last verse of chapter 9. The people responded, in view of all this, all this agonizing repeated failure, We are making a solemn promise and putting it in writing. On this sealed document are the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. The document was ratified and sealed with the following names. And there's a long list of names. The governor, some priests, some Levites. And picking up in verse 28... Then the rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the pagan people of the land in order to obey the law of God, together with their wives, sons, daughters, and all who were old enough to understand, joined their leaders and bound themselves with an oath. They swore a curse on themselves if they failed to obey the law of God as issued by his servant Moses. They solemnly promised to carefully follow all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God this people who had returned, who had been building the temple, who had been resettling the town, who had been building the wall, they had already been engaged in returning to God, make this statement of our lives are going to be wholeheartedly recommitted. They embraced the word of the Lord and they committed to live by his law. They did the best they knew how with everything in them. If you listen to this, they made a solemn promise and bound themselves by an oath. They put it in writing and sealed the document with the signatures of the important people. They made it as legal as they knew how to make it. They swore curses on themselves if they failed to obey God. With everything in them, with everything they knew how, they made a wholehearted recommitment to follow God by embracing his word and by living according to his law. So how do we... When we've noticed that we have drifted from God, make a wholehearted commitment to follow God. Does it look the same as the wholehearted commitment that the Israelites made to embrace his word and to live according to his law? One of the things that we do as students of God's word when we're studying, especially if it's a narrative passage like this, and we see a truth jump out at us like this, that that we are called to wholeheartedly recommit to God whenever we notice we've drifted away from him, is we need to take that truth that we can see in the story and we need to lift it up onto a timeline and we need to move that forward into 2017 and bring that same truth down and say, okay, what does it look like to wholeheartedly recommit to following God in 2017? What has happened along this timeline that might change how that looks here? What is the application to you and I today with this passage? And there are two very important things that happen along this timeline that impact how we answer that question. How do you and I wholeheartedly recommit when we realize that we've drifted away from God? The first one is what we call the 400 silent years. So Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are likely the final chronological stories written in the Old Testament. And then from the years that they were written until the time that the New Testament was written, there's what we call the 400 silent years. God was still present. He was still with his people, but there were no recorded prophets. And during those 400 years... All we can know is that these people who in Nehemiah said with everything they had in them, they were going to embrace God's word and follow his law, were doing the best they knew how to do just that. And when the curtain opens on the New Testament and we see the results of how they did doing the best they knew how in those 400 silent years, we find that they have drifted into a works-based religion. They have drifted into a place where it is rigid It is legalistic, it is angry, and it is arrogant. The Pharisees have added 613 new laws and rules for the people to have to live by than what God had written in his word. And so we see that when we are left to ourselves to do the best that we can as people who long to follow God, it's not enough. We can't do it. We'll we'll drift one way or the other. And these people drifted into a rigid, legalistic, works-based righteousness. Married to their behavior rather than married to their Savior. The second thing we see on that timeline then is as a result of the reality that we as humankind, even doing the best we can to follow the law that God set, can't do it, is that Jesus came. Because God knew we couldn't do it. And at just the right time, he sent his son And Jesus came and he demonstrated what a life full of faith dependent on the Father looked like, dependent on the Holy Spirit looked like, and then he died for our sin and he rose again and he rescued us from this body of sin and he rescued us from the fact that we can't live according to the law. If you look at the covenant that the Israelites were living under at the time of their recommitment to God, I would call it the obey and trust covenant, the Old Testament is full of if then statements. If you obey me, then I will provide for you, be present with you, protect you. If then you obey, then you can trust what I will do as God. We see it clearly in Leviticus 18:5. If you obey my decrees and my regulations, you will find life through them. I am the Lord. Do you hear it? The if then obey, then trust. If you obey, then you will find life. The Old Testament covenant was an obey and trust covenant. And yet, that is not the covenant that you and I live under. Because Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. And he died on the cross for the fact that you and I could never live up to the obey and then trust covenant. And we see it here in Galatians chapter 3. It says, so it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. And it's not on the screen, but that verse goes on to say, this way of faith is very different from the way of law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. Jesus came and he lived and died for a new covenant. And then Paul came and he taught the people who had lived according to the old covenant how to live according to the new covenant. And he says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. In Romans 8, Paul tells us this. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. So the law is powerless to save us because of our sinful nature. And God sends his son. He becomes a sin offering and he does what we could not do. And then he teaches us how to live according to that new covenant. By ne- but now we have been released from the law. For we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God Not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. So when we take this truth of wholeheartedly recommitting to God, the Israelites did it by committing to obey the letter of the law and we put that on the timeline that passes the 400 silent years and that passes the cross of Christ, and we bring that truth into 2017, we are called to recommit, to wholeheartedly recommit by embracing His grace and living according to His Spirit. Living accordance to the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our heart and in our soul as found in His Word. We embrace His grace and we live according to His Spirit. But how do we do that? So many times as I was unpacking this scripture, I would say, yeah, but how? Those are great thoughts. But how do we embrace his grace? How do we live by his spirit? Read Galatians chapter 2 with me. For when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. (laughs) It condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. There was no need for Christ to die if keeping the law could have been enough. But it wasn't, and so I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God. How do I recommit to following him when I notice that I've drifted? I do that by trusting him. We need to trust God. And yet, again, the question, how? How? It's all fine and good for people to stand up front and say, trust Jesus, have faith. But how? I have found the journey of trust to be long and arduous and challenging and difficult. I have faced shame and I have faced fear and I have faced confusion in places where I've been stuck. Sixteen years ago, I was in a season of life where I was exceptionally stuck with worry and anxiety They would rise up in me, I had physical reactions to them, and I was so stuck because I wanted to do the right thing, and I was so afraid, I was so worried, I was so anxious that I wouldn't make good choices, I wanted to commit myself fully to God's law and His way and His righteousness, but I was so afraid I would mess up that I couldn't even make a choice. I know this might sound silly, but there were days I would stand in front of my closet and I couldn't decide what to wear because maybe God had a will about what I would wear and what if I got it wrong? I was that paralyzed by worry and anxiety. On a parallel track that I didn't know yet was connected, God had been nudging me to try a relatively new small group here at Salem Alliance. It was called Steps. Now we call it Life Path. It's based on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, a place to deal with our hurts, our hang-ups, and our habits— and my some total understanding of it was that it was for recovery. And so when God kind of nudged me to try this small group, I was like, but I'm not an alcoholic and I'm not a child of an alcoholic. And so I don't know why you would want me to go try this small group. And meanwhile, I still have this trust issue going on in my head and I'm starting to talk with friends about it. I'm starting to talk with my small groups about it. I'm starting to ask some questions and admit that I'm struggling. And you know what I heard. Jennifer, if you're stuck in worry and anxiety, you just need to trust God. You just need to have more faith. And I would say, are you not hearing me? I have been a Christ follower for over 25 years and I don't know how to let the truth of this word impact the reality of my day-to-day life where I can't get dressed because I'm afraid I might make a mistake. And I was so ashamed of the fact that I didn't know how to trust God. And I was so scared of the reality that after following Christ for 25 years, friends, I grew up in the church. I went to all the camps. I went to all the retreats. I went to all the youth groups and the mission trips and I volunteered and I became a leader and I became a teacher. And by the time these truths were rising up in my life, I had not just been a Christ follower, but I had been an involved, fully devoted Christ follower for 25 years and I I didn't know how to trust God enough to quit worrying about what I was putting on in the morning. And this still small voice said, Try life path. Try life path. So I finally obeyed. I went to the first meeting. I thought something resonated in my soul. And I thought, okay, this is something I'm going to try. And I got my book, and it was about the 12 steps. And I took my book home, and I read the first chapter, and I had an epiphany an aha moment that began the process of changing my world. Have you ever had somebody put words to something that you've not been able to quite wrap your brain around and just the vocabulary gave you the ability to to anchor something that you hadn't been able to figure out yet? And this author talked about worry and he talked about worry being when we wrap the hands of our mind around something and that we need to let go with the hands of our mind to stop worrying. And I went, that's it. If I'm holding a ball and you tell me to let it go, to drop it, my brain knows what signals to send to my hands to drop the ball. But if you tell me because I'm worrying to let go with the hands of my mind of that worry, to drop it, to release it to God, to trust Him, my brain doesn't know what signals to send to my soul to let go with the hands of my mind. It was such an epiphany that I came back and I shared with my group that week. I know I should trust Jesus and this is where I'm stuck and I've been so confused, but the hands of my mind and a ball and I'm praying and I got so worked up about it, my leader interrupted me. She interrupted me and she said, Jennifer, so is what you're saying that you're powerless? I said, yeah, I'm powerless because I've just been stuck for so long and this has been so confusing and people tell me I should trust God but I can't trust God and I should be i tried 25 years blah, 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 and she interrupted me a second time and she said Jennifer, that's all we're doing tonight. This is step one. To admit that we're powerless over our human condition and that our lives have become unmanageable. Can you admit that? I said yeah I can. She said that's it. And I cannot explain to you the freedom of that moment of sitting with a group of people who knew that I was a Christ follower and were okay with me just saying, I don't know how to trust God. And that's all. We're going to take baby steps together as a group to take the next step. But right now, just one step at a time, we're just admitting that we're powerless. And I'm like, I can do that. And gradually, over the months of that course, and we took baby step after baby step, I began to find my way out of the stuck swamp of my own inability to trust God. Our lead pastor at the time, Morris Dirk, summarized these steps, and his summary of that first step was, I can't. I can't. For me, what that looked like was, I can't quit worrying by trying harder to quit worrying. I can't silence the condemning voice of perfectionism that rises up in my head. I can't stop the jealousies and the judgments that rise unbidden in me. And still, I'm ashamed to admit that I can't control my compulsive behaviors that lead towards distraction and diversion instead of dealing with what is real in my life. And oh, the joy and the grace and the freedom to realize that there is actually biblical foundational truth behind this belief, this statement of I can't. Listen to it from Romans chapter 3. No one is righteous, not even one. I can't. From Romans 5, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Utterly helpless. That's in the Bible. Do you hear the I can't in that? We were utterly helpless. I can't. And the journey for me of learning to trust God had to start with the awareness that with all of my trying and striving and wanting to figure it out and be a good Christian and all the things I'd learned about reading the Bible more and praying more and joining a small group and coming to church more often, those are all fabulous practices that will bear fruit in our lives, but not if they're born out of our desire to prove that we are okay and that we have what it takes and that we can live according to the law that no one can live according to. And so the second step then is, but God can. That's the beauty in this. Ephesians tells us that God saved you by his grace when you believed. Matthew 19 tells us that nothing is impossible for God. Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from his love. He is our refuge. He is our wisdom. He is our strength. He is our redeemer. He is our everything we could ever possibly need. I can't. And that final awareness leads me into the beautiful awareness of, but God can. You know, some of us struggle to believe the I can't. Some of us struggle to believe that God can. Sometimes we need to pause in this place and actually examine our heart. Maybe you're like me and you've come to church a long time and you're like, well, yeah, of course God can. But when you really get down to it, do you really believe that God can intersect the reality of your daily life? That difficult boss, that breaking apart marriage that place where your priorities have strayed away from where they want them, you want them to be, that over-busyness that distracts you, that addiction or pornography or adultery, these ways that we drift from God, whether they seem small or they seem be, big, they are agonizingly repeated. And when we drift from God, how do we in this new covenant wholeheartedly recommit to following him? It's by embracing his grace and living according to his spirit by trusting him. With the I can't, the God can, and then the third step, I'll let him. I'll let him. When I finally came to grips with the fact that I could not measure up to God's standard, and that God had done it all for me, and I truly believed in my heart of hearts that he was enough to restore my life to sanity, the next step is to say, I will turn my life and my will over to him. I will let him. We see this in scripture in Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This this step of I will let him is a step of full surrender. It's a step, if you will, theologically we call it sanctification, sanctification. It's being made more and more and more into the image and likeness of Christ so that we reflect his character and his nature to the world around us. We are being sanctified. Hebrews tells us that God is making perfect those who have been made holy. Isn't that fascinating? You and I have been made holy by the blood of Jesus on the cross. We are already washed pure. We are white as snow. We have been made holy by the work of Jesus. We are redeemed. And yet God is still making us perfect because we are living in this broken world where we still have free will and we still drift away from God's plan and purpose in our life. I can't, God can, I'll let him. This covenant turned on its head from an obey and trust covenant to a trust and obey covenant. Yes, we are still called to obey. When we wholeheartedly recommit to God, obedience has to be a part of that. But the obedience flows out of the trust that he has already done all the work and that none of our obedience has anything to do with our eternal place with him, with our identity and who we are as his children. But our obedience has everything to do with flowing out of the place that we trust him. We trust his goodness for us. We trust his purposes for us. We used to sing a song that um, says he rules with wisdom and power and love. God is wise enough to know everything that you and I need. He is powerful enough to do whatever it takes for those needs. And he is loving enough that whatever he does is for our good. This is the God that we trust. So what do we do when we recognize that we have drifted away from God? We wholeheartedly recommit not to trying harder, but we recommit to embracing his grace and living by his spirit, by walking the journey of trust. Sometimes it's weekly. Sometimes it's daily. Sometimes it's hour by hour that I notice this drift. And when I do, I come back to, oh, that's right. I can't. See, my default is still to fix it, still to figure it out, still to try to be enough. And when I recognize it, oh, that's right. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when I recognize the drift, I don't have to hang my head and beat myself up and go, oh, how can I possibly be here again? Now I've been a Christ follower for 40 years. That's not the response God's looking for when we recognize drift. It's like Nehemiah said, this is not a time to weep, this is a time to celebrate. God has gently gotten our attention. He has showed us the drift, and He's inviting us to wholeheartedly recommit by embracing His grace and walking according to His Spirit. That journey of trust with the I can't, God can, I'll let Him. Let's pray. As we pray, I would invite you, if you're comfortable, to place your hands open on your lap with your palms up in a posture of humility and receiving what it is that God would say to you today. Father, we are your beloved children. We are here in this building today because we want to follow you. And yet we have a sin nature and a free will and we drift from you. God, would you give us the courage to wholeheartedly recommit to you from wherever we are today? If our hearts have been steeped in rebellion, if our lives have been leading lives of willful sin, if we've simply gotten distracted and gotten our priorities out of line, whatever it is that you are highlighting in each heart and mind right now, would you give the courage to turn to you and to wholeheartedly recommit? And if that means an acknowledgement that I can't, I pray that you would give each individual in here that freedom of recognizing that there is an amazing peace that comes with admitting that we are not enough in and of ourselves. And Lord, if the the journey today brings someone right, right face to face with the eye that God can, Would you give each person here an experience of your faithfulness in such a way that it builds a foundation of faith in their life, that more and more they grow to know that no matter what the issue is on any given day, you are able to clean up the messes that we are not, to give us peace, to give us comfort, to give us holiness, give us energy, wisdom, whatever it is we need, you offer it. And Lord, if we know we can't, and we know you can, but we are struggling with the sanctification, with the letting you, with the full surrender, I pray that you would give us courage to release our own plan and our own control and to trust that you have our good in mind. Because God, we want to be people who live wholeheartedly for you. Amen. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers@salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.